That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the club that you didn't want to join. We're the voice of rare disease and this jingle doesn't rhyme. Nordpod, Nordpod, Nordpod. Each year, Rare community members join together to experience the magic of connecting at the Nord Living Rare, Living Stronger Patient and Family Forum. Did you miss it? Or do you just want to relive it? Check out today's bonus episode, which features yours truly, Leslie Nordstrom from Nord, alongside Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell of Offscript Media, Cam Redlosk, a designer and patient advocate, and Mike Porath, CEO and founder of The Mighty. You might remember Mike from episode two of Nordpod. Our discussion pulled directly from our live panel and explores what it means to be rare storytellers. Enjoy. Well, my name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a 25-year survivor of the rarest type of brain cancer you could possibly imagine called medulloblastoma. And I was a college senior on my way to grad school to study film composition as an aspiring concert pianist who had been trained for a decade. And my left hand lost all of its fine motor coordination, and I was kind of rendered good luck with that by the medical establishment. So, spoiler alert, I'm still here, and I'm very excited to be participating in today's event. Hi, my name is Andrew McDowell. Uh, My connection to the rare community is by way of these people. My son, Henry, my daughter, Maggie, and my partner in navigating through this community, Andrea Salvatore, my wife. My son, Henry, was diagnosed with severe congenital neutropenia at the age of 18 months. And the story that I'm going to be telling during the Storytellers panel is all about that experience and uh, the road that we followed toward what appears to have been Henry's cure. Storytelling was a very important part of that, and I look forward to sharing our story with you. Hello, I'm Mike Korath, and I'm connected to the rare disease community in a few ways. First and foremost, I'm the dad of a daughter with a rare disease. My daughter has Duke 15Q syndrome, uh, which basically means she's got extra genetic material on a 15th chromosome, um, and she... Uh, and that's in every cell in her body, and she's wired differently. She's autistic and has a number of other challenges. In the process of raising her, uh, and my wife and I have three other boys as well, we, dis- we discovered that we got the most help by connecting with other people, and that led to my second role here, which was the founder and CEO of The Mighty, which is an a online health community with over 3 million members now, um, designed to help people through any type of health issue that they have. It's a place you can connect with others, and share your experiences. Um, what we really do is try to capture the power of those shared experiences to help each other out. And then finally, I serve on a number of nonprofit boards, um, including NORDS, uh, 215Q Alliances, and I'm involved in a number of different rare disease organizations as well. Hi, my name is Karen Redlask. I'm an industrial designer, illustrator, writer, and patient advocate. 
for disability and my rare muscle wasting condition called HIBM, also known as GE myopathy. I've been a patient advocate for over 12 years and I use art, writing, and my wheelchair travels to share the experience of living with a progressive, rare muscle wasting condition such as mine. Stories are really all we have at the end of the day. And without those, we lack a sense of objectivity and empathy and emotional intelligence that give us perspectives on how we can choose to live every day on our terms based on what's important to us. So the founder of Stupid Cancer, which is the largest young adult cancer support community in the world, and it was an experiment in storytelling. No one had ever really catalyzed the narrative that cancer in adolescents and young adults wasn't better or worse than everyone else. It was just different. So stories matter. Stories make us. Stories change the world. Storytelling is precisely what makes a human a human. As far as we know, we are alone in the universe when it comes to material that understands the concept of chronology, the notion of a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's the way that we make sense of things as a result, and it's our duty to do our, the best possible job of it. So when it comes to experiencing challenging situations, it's really through stories and narratives that we build for ourselves that we get through them. There's a narrative that we have in our mind that we're consistently editing as we go through a really challenging experience, such as that of helping a loved one through a rare disease. And we're constantly editing it as we go through the experience. Simply put, I believe in the power of stories. I've spent most of my career as a journalist working for organizations like ABC News, NBC News, and the New York Times. And I believe that my work and that of my colleagues has had a real impact. Within health, I actually think stories can be even more impactful. I can tell you my, the day my daughter got diagnosed, uh, I found stories online of other parents writing about you know, raising a child with this condition. Those were so meaningful to me. They made me feel less alone. They made me feel like there's others out there that are being, you know, that can manage this. My wife and I can too. Uh, and I really believe, you know, in terms of building the mighty and online health community, what we've done is we started with stories because stories have a way of opening things up. We all learn from stories. Um, we all love a, a well-told story. And great stories lead to conversation. Great conversation leads to building community. And, you know, as I hope that we can move to a more of a patient-centered healthcare system, stories can have an enormous role in that in getting us there where the real experience of people come out. And, uh, and that's what hopefully our healthcare system starts focusing on the patient. I think storytelling is important because it humanizes us. We don't learn empathy through ideas. We learn empathy through stories and experiences. And I think stories lead us to connection, awareness, compassion, and more understanding. Hi, I am so thrilled to be spending this weekend with over 700 amazing zebras and supporters of the Rare community attending the Living Rare Forum. My name is Leslie Prophet Nordstrom. I am the Director of Marketing and Communications at the National Organization for Rare Disorders. I am also the partner of a rare disease patient. My husband has been living with Addison's disease since he was diagnosed almost two decades ago. Today, I'm joined by four very different storytellers that you met briefly in our opener for this rare storytelling hour. Matthew Zachary, 
is the is a survivor of young adult brain cancer. And he will be speaking today with Andrew McDowell, whose young son was diagnosed with severe congenital neutropenia. Together, they founded Oscript Media to lift up their stories and the stories of others through the medium of podcasting. Nord is excited to be launching our very own podcast very soon with Offscript called Dermal NordPod. After this session, please visit nordpod.com to listen to the teaser, subscribe, and please give us a good rating. Um, next up on the panel, we will have Mike Porath. Mike Porath is the founder and CEO of The Mighty, as you heard, a digital health platform that is sharing stories that reach over 20 million people each month. His daughter, living with Duke 15 q syndrome, inspired Mike to transform his career. In addition to the work with The Mighty and serving on the boards of the Duke 15Q Alliance, as well as Nord's board, he is a member of the Global Commission to End the Diagnostic Odyssey for Children with Rare Diseases. And finally, we have Cam Redlosk. Uh, she is an inspiring artist, illustrator, and writer who documents her life with a rare and degenerative muscle-wasting disorder known as g and &E myopathy. She uses Instagram in a very spectacular way, I have to say, to share her travels around the world to encourage people with disabilities and the able body to come together to live more and to challenge perceptions about what someone in a wheelchair can do. But before I turn it over to our first speaker, I just want to get on a few housekeeping items. Please share your story about attending today's session. Hashtag Living Rare Forum is the hashtag that you want to use for any posts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Insta. Make sure that you're sharing your story about your weekend, whether it's with this session or others. So with that, let me turn it over to Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie. And hello to my community, the rare disease community. I'll start by just recapping my, my cancer story super quick because that's not what I'm doing these days. That, that only frames why I got to where I got to. But I was a, a teenager uh, majoring in music, concert pianist, got to undergrad to study for film composition. And prior to graduating, I had lost uh, fine motor coordination in my left hand when misdiagnosed for many, many months, and we all nod our heads when we say misdiagnosed, it's a very common thing that frustrates us, ultimately had uh, pediatric brain cancer, uh, one of 200 diagnosed in the world that year, and that diagnosis typically comes under the age of eight, and I was 21. So it baffled the world once it was discovered what I actually had, and I was given six months to live, which is always fabulous when you're not... 145 years old. So with that said, the struggle was real. This was the 90s. We lived in a very different ecosystem, very different climate about what matters to patients. There really were no stories because there was no internet. I think the AOL CDs were floating around next to the Wiz and what, Crazy Eddie's and I'm up in New York, you can tell. <laughs> so this idea of community and identity didn't exist. It was pure isolation and that was what I had to go through because there were really no other choices. Long story short to that long story short, I'm still here 25 years later, spoiler alert. But what I wound up doing was figuring out how I could stay alive. What did that mean? And I had my family. I had my friends. No one really knew what I was going through. So I fell back into a career 
in IT, marketing, computer tinkering. Along that journey, I found some guy who also had my cancer in his 20s, went to my alma mater and lived near me. And I didn't know that for seven years. So that moment in time in my life was when I realized that I wasn't alone. I could do something beyond what I thought by scrolling along, just being this sick kid who wasn't hopeful, who might maybe turn 30 one day. And I became an advocate that day because what it meant to me was I could make life better for someone else like me. That was my definition of advocacy because this guy, Craig, who's still one of my best friends, helped me understand the power that my story could be to give perspective and honor the fact that we we make progress. And if it wasn't for advocacy, I don't believe there would be any progress. I had the chance to leave my career and start a movement for largely Gen Xers, because at the time in the early 2000s, there really was no cohesive community. Everything was based on body parts. And I found Nord, ironically, in that time, which I never knew about. Why would I know about it? And they cared about rare cancer. I'm like, really? Someone cares about rare cancer? So I joined Nord, joined, right? I felt like I belonged to something. And in doing so, it further motivated me to believe that there was a, a catalyzing opportunity to create a, a larger movement of voices that were invisible, that were really silent, or maybe not silent because there was no way to amplify them. So I created a, a nonprofit called Stupid Cancer in 2007. And one of the circumstances leading up to what I do today was some person decided it would be good to put a microphone in front of this face. And for better or for worse, I launched the first radio show for cancer in 2007. We call them podcasts now, but it was really internet radio and dial-up. So the stupid cancer show single-handedly galvanized, I said that word three times already, <laughs> the voice of the cancer community, largely Gen Xers and millennials, and our parents and our kids to feel like we belonged, that we weren't being judged, that there was no stigma, that you, 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 you belonged to a club you didn't want to be a part of, but membership was free, and there were all these great benefits that you never really wanted to have. So Stupid Cancer grew over 14 years. I exited a year and a half ago to become the largest support community uh, in the world, and that just gave a voice. And it, I, I want to mention that it's not about how old you are. It's about what's different about the experience of when you get sick. When do you enter that, oh, crap, store that you don't want to go shopping in? That's what Stupid Cancer stood for. And it, it rose. It was a rising tide brand. And I realized that having stepped down after running the, uh, the show for 500 episodes, millions of listeners, again, you're the first, you're going to be the only for a while. Uh, I needed to be back behind the mic. And I went back to Nord. And I said, hey, guys, I noticed you don't have a podcast, not a radio show, a podcast. And I felt like there was such a desire, an unmet need to add broadcasting to rare disease. And this idea of the voice of young adult cancer translated into 2020's lingo of the voice of rare disease included rare cancer, which was me. So it was just a privilege to have the Rolodex and the friendships and the relationships that I built for 20 years to go right there. You know, to Peter and to the board and to Leslie and the team and, and say, I have a vision to help you guys amplify the voices, tell these stories and take this from Matt 
the stupid cancer guy with a microphone to we all have a platform and a voice to share. And I meant what I said in the intro. Stories are the only thing we have. And it might seem pedantic to say that it's the only thing we have, but it really has been the consistency. You know, the only constants are, you know, music and math, universal languages, stories are universal languages. They cross-pollinate over no matter who you are and where you came from. And I still believe that they're the only things that make things matter. I'm a firm believer in Margaret Mead, what she accomplished, the metaphor behind her, and that advocacy is possible, advocacy works, and advocacy matters. So I'm here supporting this event, thrilled to be here. I feel like it's a 20-year homecoming for me to finally be a part of NORD and and, and be your advocate, be your voice, and teach everyone else how to be an advocate and a voice. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think that when it comes to stories. Oh, you're here? Yes, I am. I'm absolutely here. <laughs> and I'm proud to be. Uh, because when it comes to stories are are what galvanize communities. You said galvanize. I do. I, so that's, that's four, I think. So keep <laughs> count, everyone. Uh, so they galvanize communities. They bring people together. Uh our ancestors gathered together, and a lot of what they gathered around was the story. I think that there's a danger when people think of stories that, that people will think of a book, because books have a rare cover. But communities are people who are telling active stories together and are looking to influence the course of that story. There's a narrative that is ongoing through the process of seeing someone through a rare disease and through the process of of attempting to change the way in which rare diseases are dealt with in society. That was certainly the case with my, my son, Henry. Our community began to gather when we started telling stories to our friends and family about the diagnosis that Henry re had received, about the directions we were taking his treatment in. And when we finally got to the point where we were about to send him through the process of a bone marrow transplant, it was, for example, the act of my telling a story to Matt about Henry's situation and what we were planning to do that led to Matt, who was already a friend of mine, showing me what the value of patient advocacy was. Uh, he encouraged me to push our health team to go through measures that they were not that were atypical to make sure that we preserved a sample of Henry's reproductive tissue so that it, if his chemotherapy harmed his ability to reproduce down the line, we might have a shot at giving him uh, the ability to reproduce anyway. Without Matt, without my telling Matt a story and without him responding with a story about what's possible that I wasn't aware of, we'd be in a very different state. We changed the course of the story together with our own mini community. And that's what Nord is all about. It's, it, it's about working together on changing the course of the story. I think another thing that I want to just tell you about when it comes to storytelling is that there's a really remarkable, uh, nearly absurd example of storytelling that coalesced around my son Henry's uh, bone marrow transplant. And that is that a friend of ours, a kids rock musician named Lloyd Miller, uh, he actually was very moved by Henry's story and he decided to give Henry a way of participating in, in, a, in a cosmic extraterrestrial story that he created called Ursa Major, Ursa Minor. He created a video that was about five minutes long every week for 12 weeks. And what he did was he built a community around this story that he was creating for Henry. He gave everybody a way to participate in entertaining Henry and engaging him throughout his treatment 
uh, by creating these videos. He, he connected with them on Zoom. He sent people out on trips uh, back when travel was possible. Uh, people shot episodes of this of this series in Spain. And it, it gave everybody a, a new way of engaging much more deeply with Henry's experience. Of course, it's great to to send uh, contributions to a healthcare fund. That's very important. It's it's very important to to send meals that families can keep in their freezers and so on. But it's also extremely important to to find a way to participate in the story. There's nothing more human than a story, and that's why they create communities so effectively. Uh, so stories have been absolutely critical to to my own experience with rare disease, and now with Matt. Uh, I've been privileged to build my life around helping to tell these stories. If I could button that up real quickly with another plug for NordPod, the voice of rare disease, we're shooting episodes with shooting. We're recording episodes, radio, we're recording episodes as we speak to have a, a big launch with a bunch of, with a bunch of really compelling content for you when it goes to market. But I do want to share really quickly. I just taped an episode with one of your members, about the power of storytelling and the power of community, specifically through the lens of the word life hack. Mm. And as much as I wouldn't want to say that helping you understand fertility options for your five-year-old was a life hack, it really was a life hack because the things you can learn from clinical versus the things you can learn from community interoperate incredibly well. And instead of going to Dr. Google, you may find more value from people like you. And this amazing couple had a, had a child with, with, with a severe genetic, uh, genetic condition born. They learned from a Facebook group all the life hacks they needed, and they were just told that he's going to be fine. And just hearing those words from your peers is just as valuable as hearing them from your doctor. So I'm just going to say the word galvanize one more time because I needed to say it. So thank you very much. Galvanize. Oh, you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> so thank you so much to Andrew and Matthew. I'm just going to kick it over to Mike. But before I do, I just want to make sure that uh, everyone knows the reason that Mike and Andrew are filming together is that they are quarantine buddies. And actually, uh, we know for certain that that uh, uh, Matt has the what do you have? The you have the antibodies for COVID-19. And and so you're you're uh, out and about safely. I just got tested for the third time and they're still in me. I don't know what it means, but I'm glad they're there. All right, wonderful. Well, now let's kick it on over to Mike Porath. Mike, take it away. So uh, thank you. I'm really happy to be here with a number of other great storytellers who I think we're all trying to help each other, um, help others with rare diseases, learn from each other and, um, you know, galvanize community. I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll with what uh, Matthew and, and Andrew. So my story, my wife and I have, have four kids. Our oldest uh, was born with a rare disease called Duke-15Q syndrome, although we didn't know that for a couple of years. It, um, we, were going, we were living on the East Coast, seeing lots of doctors. It was clear from about six months old that she was not thriving the way a typical baby does. And uh, it took a long time. We had a lot of doctor conversations. We finally found a doctor who just was very methodical in saying, okay, here's a process. We're going to get to an answer and started taking us through some different steps. And uh, eventually we got a test that came back. And I still remember the, the phone call that day that he called us. Uh, just to give you some context, earlier in the day, uh, my wife and I were going for an ultrasound for she was pregnant about 20 weeks along with our second um, child, a boy. And we learned that morning that he was missing a kidney. 
And at that point, they were concerned that there could be a lot of other challenges. So it was already we were already in kind of a not good mood, questioning what was going on with this, you know, this child developing inside my my wife. And then we get home and an hour later, we get a phone call from our developmental pediatrician saying that a test result had come back and then Annabelle had this rare disease that um, he didn't actually know what it was at the time, but he said it was clear that this is what was causing all her problems. And um, he said, you know, just based on what he was, you know, the information he was pulling together, it was unlikely that she was going to develop, her mind would develop beyond that of a five-year-old. And so really in a matter of a couple hours, our lives were, you know, really thrown for a loop. It turned out that our, our you know, baby boy coming along, he, he has one kidney, but otherwise is, is totally fine. But, uh, life with Annabelle has been really challenging. I mean, that day learning about what this, you know, disease was, you know, it was, um, you know, I did what most people do. I went to Google. And what I found was a lot of medical information that I didn't understand, not at first. The thing that was most helpful to me was I found six stories written by parents of kids with this condition. And the feeling just reading those was it was so they were so raw and so powerful. I learned what autism really was from these parents. I learned what, um, you know, they're talking about their sons and daughters having seizures 30, 40 times a day really tough stuff. But what was surprising to me was there was joy and humor in these stories, which was unexpected. And I think that was what made me feel like these other parents that are out there uh, raising kids with this disease, like they seem okay. <laughs> like they're, 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 they're doing fine. And so, you know, that just it made me feel less alone. It made me feel, you know, I remember telling my wife, like, I wish we could find these folks and take them out for a beer and just, you know, listen to them. And, you know, this was a new journey that we were on. So it was so helpful to us. And then that led to, you know, career wise, I was a, a journalist working for big news organizations at the time. And so, you know, I was kind of a professional storyteller in that way, but I had never been impacted by stories like the ones that I read that day my daughter was diagnosed. So, so again, it, that was incredibly moving for me. That was, you know, kind of that first experience. I'll pull up. Hopefully you guys can see this. This is my daughter, Annabelle, and me. It's uh, pretty recent, maybe a year ago. She's doing uh, really well. She's, for the most part, a happy kid. Um, and she's got three little brothers who um, are going to continue to help her. On, you know, they're her best therapists, we say, just in terms of all the ways that they, they uh, help and support her. The experience going through all that and learning that the thing that helped, you know, helped us more than anything else was those stories, was connecting with other people, um, led us to launch uh, The Mighty, which is uh, an online health community now with over 3 million members who share experiences with each other, the same kind of experiences that were so helpful to us in those early days. We found a way, you know, through this brand to bring people together across, you know, over a thousand different health conditions, um, again, to share those experiences because they are so valuable, they are so helpful. And so it's, it enabled me to kind of transform my, my career as a professional storyteller, but now applying it in a way that can have such, such more of a, you know, an impact, I think, on folks. What we've seen is that, you know, when we think about the power of stories, stories have a way of starting conversations, right? That's what we all talk about. And um, we tell stories. And once you get those conversations going, conversations is what leads to building communities. And those communities can be helpful in so many different ways. We see these with so many advocate um, organizations. And of course, NORD, it's really, I think of it as an umbrella organization around all of these different rare disease communities. So, that was the, you know, that's the purpose of the mighty. It's continuing to grow and, and we hope we can, you know, continue to have a, a big impact on folks. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mike. Now I am going to turn it over to Cam. Cam, are you ready? 
All right, so uh, hello everyone again. As my introduction video said, a little background about me is I have a genetic muscle wasting condition called HIBM. Um, it's also known as GNE myopathy. When I think about it, my symptoms began when I was 17 and I didn't really notice until I was 20. And so this is when I began looking for answers. At the time when I was in, I was in college pursuing a major in automotive and industrial design, and after five misdiagnoses, I finally learned I had this ultra-rare and progressive muscle-wasting condition that could eventually lead me to complete immobility if treatment wasn't found. So, you know, what does one do with this news? Well, I graduated college and I moved to California to look for design opportunities. And in this move, I had happened to meet two patients who were just like me. And this was just something that specialists said would never happen because my condition is that rare. These two patients had begun their own nonprofit to gain awareness and help develop treatment, and they asked if I could help. And I was, uh, as I was helping them design and fundraise, I soon realized the general public is inundated with names of diseases, and they're not going to respond to you know medical textbook definitions or to st statistics. So I knew if anyone was going to truly care, I would have to develop a connection. And so I believe I started the very first blog for my disease back in 2009. And I use this space to sort of uh, talk about my intimate moments and, and of living with a progressive condition. What is that like from the adventures to the grief, the grief and loss to documenting uh, the progression to showing that, you know, I was a regular human outside of uh, with many interests and dreams that were beyond my disability. Um, so a year after I began blogging, I was just thinking maybe drawings could also be another way to express this experiences. I think everyone connects kind of differently. And so I became a self-taught illustrator and found drawing my experience was completely different than using words. And I've since used both art and writing and juxtaposition to kind of share my story and paint an idea of what the experience of disease and disability looks like. And through this, I have found connection is about fully sharing yourself. So using these tools like drawing, writing, and photographically documenting uh, my wheelchair travels, sharing soon became a way to connect, uh, build community, and spin meaning for those who are disabled, and even those who aren't. For me, I think the purpose of storytelling is twofold. One, so others out there who are different or struggling know they exist and they aren't alone. I've lived with this disease for about 21 years now, and for about the first half, I was dealing with it completely alone, uh, the diagnosis search, and so I know what isolation feels like. And two, educating the public on a perspective most probably have never experienced or even thought of because, honestly, because they don't have to. So for me, I found sharing through art and writing is a really personal way for me to connect. And while I find that writing is more literal, I think art is subjective storytelling. You know, a simple image can say so much, yet it's really up to the viewer to interpret and apply how they feel in the space I created for them, which is kind of cool. You know, I like hearing stories of how someone else may be connected or how they see themselves in one of my drawings. And so that's kind of really fulfilling. It encourages me to keep going. Kind of a theme that constantly replays in my art and writing is how does one deal with constant loss and how do you come to terms with something like that? And I think even if someone doesn't have an illness or a disability, Speaking to very core emotions like grief and joy is something we all experience. It's just really accessible. So I try to speak through more emotions about the process of uh, progressive condition. 
I'm just thinking about this moment back in 2012. I was still using cane and leg braces, and I had tripped over this eighth of an inch thick doorway molding. And as I was laying there post fall, I um, on the floor, I kind of imagined maybe some outside entity, like a forlorn monster who was the origin of all my struggles and pain. He put his foot out and he had tripped me. And for me, this is a way to personify my disease as um, a way of kind of making sense of what was going on with my body. And so right after I got up, I drew this monster and little girl in a forest setting. And I began kind of contemplating our relationship, you know, how he never leaves my side, how much I hate that he's, you know, always in my shadow. And in this kind of contemplation, I soon realized that while he represented my disease, he was actually kind of the sweet, harmless monster his only understanding of life was to follow and be with me. And so I, as this little girl, was kind of forced to figure out how to adapt and live within this, you know, new and breakable relationship. And uh, surprisingly, this ended up being a drawing I would receive a lot of private messages about. Uh, strangers would talk about their connection to this drawing and how it made them completely think their relationship with their disease or, or disease or disability. And um, some even share they were suicidal and they feared, because they feared of what their family or friends or church mem members would think if they knew that they were actually living, living secretly with a mental illness. But they responded with, they never thought to have empathy for their difference or ailment. And I was just amazed that something I drew could have this kind of effect. I've since taken this uh, monster and girl, girl illustration derived from that single moment. And I'm now developing a children's book inspired by this relationship with my rare disease. You know, I think stories humanize us. Uh, they can educate and change minds. Uh, they make ideas and people accessible. They can lead us to compassion, connection, awareness, and understanding. I think storytelling is really important because it is it allows us to be explorers, to travel and experience, uh, you know, bandages we normally wouldn't ever know of because it's really impossible to know what all the different ways a life could look like. And so stories provide us with that privileged window. It's, it's a very unique perspective. I also think stories can bring us to moral grounds, the way we conduct our business, design political policy, the way we vote or develop medical treatments, you know, to see there are real stories and real lives behind every single decision we make is really important. And I think our stories are also for the medical industry and a society who often views us as only through the lens of medical definitions scientific analysis and physical productivity. Um, you know, it's a misnomer that we just sit and, and do nothing with our lives and that we're just sad and tragic. And so I think, you know, this world kind of many times leaves out the humanity of our stories and our uniqueness that extends way beyond our isolated medical illness. And for me, experiencing a disability has been, is very profound and it's very human and storytelling allows uh, this human, humanizing element to sort of enter the landscape. So, um, you know, in conclusion, I think a story can be a moment or an entire world. They invite us to imagine life beyond our personal scope. And the good stories make us question ourselves and the world around us. Um, I don't believe we learn empathy through ideas. I think we learn them through experience and stories. And, um, you know, in these various perspectives we collect, we can try and find the complicated truth of what isn't and is through connection. And I personally think when society connects more, a lot of the fear and ignorance 
and walls kind of dissipate. So um, for anyone going up, going through it, whether it's an advocate or a patient or a family member, I would just say don't be afraid to share your story. Uh, be candid, be open, because in my opinion, I think stories are no good kept in the dark um, for ourselves and others. All right. Well, I think we have a few more slides from Cam's deck. I would just love her to to quickly uh, to be able to show and make sure we, we've we've gotten all those done because they're such beautiful images of both her art and her travel. So just want to make sure we we get through those before we move on. I have to say the color scheme alone is is breathtaking. So I'm I'm so thankful that we can um, have this visual treat here here today. So thank you for that, Cam. All right. Now I want to open it up to a few questions. And because I'm the moderator, I get to have first dibs and ask the, the questions that I want to ask. But of course, uh, uh, for the audience, keep putting in your questions in the Q&A. We will get to um, several questions before the session's over today. So I want to I want to start off kind of with a question to the entire panel. It it, it clearly isn't always easy to, to share our personal stories. Um, I talk to many advocates where it's, it's years of living through the diagnosis before they get to a point where they feel confident enough or they feel called to, to put some very personal details out there. So I want to ask you all, because you've been so brave with us today, what was it like in the beginning as a storyteller? Were there mistakes that you made or challenges that you faced that you wish you had known something about before you got started? Are there any words of wisdom you'd like to share with all the storytellers in the audience today? And I am going to ask for Cam, do you want to start us off on that since uh, we, we have your images so fresh in, in our minds? Yeah. In the beginning, I think one of the biggest challenges is I'm actually a pretty private person. So it was difficult, but usually for me, the, the mean, the end is more important than everything else. So all I knew is that I could advocate and share my story. And I would say for patients who share, it can become draining. Sharing your story sometimes is hard. And it took some years while I was doing a lot of sharing. It did take some years for me to like fully be really comfortable with it. And I would just say if you're a patient advocate or family advocate, just be patient with yourself and allow yourself to go through the process of figuring out how to share your story and enlighten people. That's great. And, and I think, too, it speaks to a question that we got from our audience about how do you confront the fear and anxiety when sharing that that intimate part of your journey? Um, how, you know, even down to what are some, you know, not just pie in the sky ideas, but even some hard concrete things we've had to do uh, to get over maybe an introverted nature or, or like you said, Cam, um, being a very private person in order to make an impact. I think that um, too often, I, my point of view was, again, as a, as a journal, as a working journalist, I initially tried to make my story perfect and really try to craft it. And the, the reality is for most of us, just the raw, we don't under, we totally underestimate just the raw story of what we've gone through. And, and there's other people out there who will ascribe so much meaning to those experiences because they're similar or, you know, it, 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 it then will allow them to you know, kind of open up. And so my, my advice to folks is to set expectations low, right. In terms of what you're going to say or how you're going to say it or, um, it, you know, you can choose different mediums. You could tell your story in a poem. You could do it in a video. You could do it 
um, and and a, you know, craft, a well-crafted story. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but um, don't underestimate how powerful just the raw saying it, what you've gone through, um, how much impact that can have on someone else. And so um, I think it's very therapeutic to kind of share that story for yourself, but it's also really meaningful to a lot of others, you know, who may find that. Just and just you know, having an impact on one person can, can really um, you know, potentially change their life or change their attitude around how they're approaching something. So um, I just suggest to people to you know uh, get you know get out there and, and share it in the way that feels right for you. That's great. I wonder specifically with the mighty um, is is that a, a space where people might might start off by blogging or, um, you know, is there is there a special space also we're getting the question from teens or young adults where they can interact with this, where they can't always, you know, access all the platforms that adults can? Yeah, I think for um, for us, we, we, you know, we've been at this for about six years now. And initially when we started, we're like, we're going to do three stories each day. Right. And we're going to reach out to folks and help them, you know, tell their story. Um, and it, more of a, you know, written, uh, you know, kind of context, a 500 word story or something like that. And it was a good place for us to start. We've now done over, I think we've produced over 50,000 of those stories, you know, from individuals. What we found over time was um, rather than us kind of having the controls on it, right? Like we're the, you, know, you submit a story to us and then we kind of work with you on it and, and, and share it. But we just needed to open up the platform to others. So now it works actually much more like a social media um, uh, you know, type of um, you know, platform where people can go right on and just how you would you know, share something on Facebook or Instagram, you can do on the mighty, you can choose that to be a photo. You can, uh, there, you know, there's lots of different ways to, to go about doing it. So we've basically taken some filters off and base and said, Hey, this is your platform to share and find each other and help each other out. And um, I think the engagement, it really skyrocketed when we essentially hand over the tools to it. So, uh, Matt and Andrew, so the question that was asked was about what it's like uh, to be a beginner storyteller. Um, What are some of the mistakes and challenges maybe that you learned from that you could share um, your knowledge? And and how do you how do you cope with fear and anxiety? How do you cope with stage fright? Um, You know, I'm not sure, Matt, that it seems like you have that anymore, but maybe that's something you had early on. Um, And and, uh, Andrew, you have such a a wonderful radio voice. I can't I can't imagine you ever being at a loss for words. Um, But uh, let me stop flattering you both and let you answer. You know what? Victim of forgetting to push the unmute button for the 40,000th time. Hi, everybody. We're back. I would say it's really important to distinguish between a person and their story. And people don't really care about people as much as they care about their stories. And what I mean by that is it's not about you. It's about what people can learn from you. It's very difficult to learn to tell your story with context where, you know, having hosted 500 radio shows and and being a broadcaster, you tend to become really passionate about what matters to you, but what matters to you may not be what audiences want to hear and take away. You know, the the minutia of, of what I can talk for a week straight about how crappy the nineties were is irrelevant to maybe one thing that happened to me about my dignity and how those stripped from me. And that still happens today. Something as simple as that. You will widow, Whittle? Whittle. You whittle this. That's why he's here. You whittle down the stick to the point you want to make. And 
it matters more for people to hear and listen than you talk and speak. That sounds kind of semantically contrapuntal, but learning how to tell your story is, in fact, an art and a craft. And it takes time and training and mentorship to figure out the best way that what you feel is necessary to say aligns with what people need to hear. Yeah, and there, there's a reason that, that uh, you know, Jerry Seinfeld returned to the stand-up circuit after all of his, his success uh, and that, you know, all of the, all the great, you know, stand-up comedians just to cite one type of storyteller return to audiences whenever they can. They are, they are whittled, they're doing that whittling, right? And they are, they're testing out what works and they're doing so in a way that reflects the fact that they're comfortable with uh, something falling flat. And the only way to become comfortable with something falling flat in the way in, in a story that you're telling is to do it. Uh, put yourself out there. And, you know, the, the good news, to the extent that it is good news, is that if you are participating in this event, you do have a story to tell. You have one that people will care about and you have one that people will listen to. Uh, so I would say get busy telling that story. I think I have an unfair advantage because I did theater in college. Anyone that's done theater in college, you tend to learn about stage fright and feeling. I think if you're just inherently feeling judged because of your own insecurities, that helps because you're more acutely aware of feeling the need to please people and get an applause line. But at the end of the day, it really just comes down to how you present yourself. And I'm going to botch this, but I think uh, either Eddie Izzard or George Carlin said that it's 90 percent is how you look and maybe 10 percent, 9 percent is how you say it, and 1% of what you say. So if you really want to break down how you understand audience psychology, it really comes down to the mannerisms in which you can gesticulate and articulate. The emotion behind the story you want to tell is as important as the story itself. I can't agree more with them in, in the emotional side coming out. I think a lot of people, if they, you know, they get... Um, anxiety over something and so they just try to get the facts right around their story or whatever and that's not why people are listening they're listening for that emotion that's they're connecting around the emotional part so for anyone who wants to get up in front of whether it's two people or 200 people you know to share their story my suggestion would be um get the first part right know what you're going to say the first 15 seconds or so um you'll start feeling more comfortable and know what you want to say at the very end and if you open well and close well and you just you don't have to memorize anything. Just tell the story with those emotions, you know, throughout it. People will be, you know, floored and you'll get, you know, they, they will, you'll have a real impact on folks. No, I think that's true. And I, I think one thing that we have neglected to mention when talking about, you know, the work that Matthew, Andrew, Mike and Cam that you've all done is that you didn't just tell your story one day and you were done. It was a long time of crafting, of maturing in your style, of finding new ways to, to get out there and be effective so that it, it's it's a long arc uh, to get to the point of perfecting your story. And, and I'm not sure if we ever fully get there um, because our own experiences keep evolving. And on that point, I'd actually like to, to pivot and ask a question of Cam about, you know, with your degenerative uh, disease, how do you view your art changing as the years progress? Um, has it already been impacted? And you know, what's, the, what, what's the future that you see for how you're going to continue to share for decades to come? 
So I know eventually one day my condition is progressive and I've been in a wheelchair since 2011 and it's now worked its way up to my arms and fingers and hands and stuff. So for me, I know there's a timeline for everything and eventually I won't be able to draw. My art, it's changed in terms of when I started drawing in 2010 or 11. Um, it, the first drawing was of me uh, right before I was knew I was about to go into a wheelchair. And I've noticed as I've looked through the art, I think it's gotten better, but also you can sort of see a progression, um, you know, faintly of, the, of, of, of what it's like to live with a progressive condition of how it is progressing. And I do often think about, you know, it's, it's sad. I'm an artist, I'm a designer, um, not being able to draw one day, but I try to just focus on what I can do now. And I know I'm incredibly adaptive and um, when I can no longer draw, I'll still continue writing. I can do that using assistive devices. I'll still be talking, I'll still be sharing and I'll find new ways to share and talk about my story. So um, in some ways, while it's difficult that progression happens, I find it's also a good thing because it pushes me to know that I only have this much time with something and that I really appreciate it and I really put myself into it. Um, and and, and then, you know, in years to come, I surprised myself with how I adapted and how I, you know, sort of replaced these lost loves that I, you know, can no longer do. And so I, I just kind of have faith that, you know, I'll find some way to talk. So I talk a lot, so it's, it's I'll find some way to be able to share my message. I think that's that's so beautiful. And I do want to ask real quickly, because people are asking if they want to view your art or purchase it, where can they go? Oh, just my name, camredlosk.com. Perfect. You want, to, you want to get a plug in. Now, Matthew, I think you you, uh, you might want to make a comment about this idea of storytelling for purpose. Yeah, everything, again, I, I think I open with context. You know, advocacy can mean many different things to many different people, and it takes many different forms to achieve whatever its goals are. You know, you can go down to the hill and tell your story to a senator or to an intern and with enough, I guess, maybe half your population or, or community, get a bill approved or get something swung in your district to that extent. Um, the FDA approves drugs all the time, but they find out that 85 percent of drugs are approved if there's a patient telling their story at the on, jargon, the ODAC meeting. Those are the meetings, the open discussion groups where they let patient advocates talk to the FDA in open forums and re they record them for posterity for the Library of Congress. You can get a drug approved by telling your story. You can get a policy approved by telling your story. And as, as, a, as a dovetail to that, I do a lot of work in fertility preservation advocacy for rare cancer and rare disease and, and, and especially in women with blood cancers who don't really have a lot of time to preserve their fertility let alone having it be covered by your insurance or by whatever. Uh, I think 14 states have now created mandates that fertility preservation is covered at point of diagnosis, irrespective of where you are, or where you live, as long as you're a, a legal resident of that state because of advocacy. So you have to start to look at what is the point of your telling your story based on what objective you want to hear. And to go back to the mighty, you know, when that started, that revolutionized, you know, the democratization of stories was really, I, I'd like to, I think it kind of began around Huffington Post back in the day when it first got started. But what Mike's done with the mighty is really, he, he concentralized, I made a word up there, which is like concentric and revolutionized. You're welcome. <laughs> the idea that we, that it's not about what you have, it's about what you have in common. 
and how people can find their tribe in a way that is so deeply purposeful in that vertical, in that in that life experience. The framework around what your story is has to be built around what goal you'd like to achieve by telling it. Thank you. And I want to come back to this idea of research. You know, we, we've heard a lot today about how critical research is uh, for rare diseases and, and achieving the treatments and cures that we all want for ourselves and for our loved ones. Um, but research isn't just what you think of in terms of the bench or understanding uh, our genetic code. It is uh, impacted and ultimately to getting treatments approved is impacted by the patient perspective. And, and I think we all can agree that a goal that we want to work towards is a patient-centric healthcare and, um, and, and, and system for, for getting these new treatments. So I want to kind of open it up. I know that, Cam, in particular, you work closely with your disease state's uh, research organization doing some of the marketing materials for them. But even as you guys have um, uh, across the board dealt with that, how, how critical are patient stories to that, that drug development or, or that clinical process? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, back when I got involved, um, uh, barely any patients were talking about it. It was just a couple patients, the ones who had started the nonprofit. Um, and I've since become an independent advocate where I use storytelling and art and such. But in the beginning, like I said, I'm a private person, but the goal was more important than how I felt. And all I knew is for us as a community that has rare diseases, it really lies within the patients to talk about it. And that's kind of like when I was designing for them, it was um, a campaign about patients sharing their stories because a lot of patients wouldn't share it because it was genetic. And so some, some communities would be hidden. And I was just thinking like, just come out with it because um, no one is going to know if we don't talk about it. And so I think it's extremely important for patients to get involved, especially with rare diseases um, and get together and, and have confidence and be able to share the story and affect treatment, put the pressure on and, and make people understand why this is so significant and important. Wonderful. And I also want to even back up further than the, the sort of idea of treatments and, and, and those processes. You know, a lot of the first stories that we tell in rare diseases are, are those that are representative of our diagnostic odyssey. And, and luckily for everyone on the stage here today, we have answers, but that's not true of everyone that is uh, joining us today or, or that's out in the community. Specifically, Mike, I know you were very active with the Global Commission on Ending the Diagnostic Odyssey for Children with Rare Diseases. And I want to talk, you know, that is obviously there's medical components, there's scientific components to that, but what is the value that storytelling can bring to that particular um, activity or that particular audacious goal? Um, yeah, so for those who don't know, there's a global commission um, around rare diseases. And the, the purpose of that commission, uh, I, I, I'm one of the people who serve on it, is to drastically reduce the amount of time it takes um, to, act, to get a diagnosis, particularly in kids. The average is over five years um, right now to, to get an accurate diagnosis. Most people have to see more than seven different types of doctors before they get the accurate diagnosis. So um, this is a commission that is a combination of patient advocates like myself. Um, they have world-renowned geneticists as part of that commission, um, technologists, uh, Microsoft is a big part of it. There are uh, companies developing treatments for this, um, uh, you know, Takeda, uh, there's, uh, and there's a lot of um, nonprofit organizations. And we've all kind of come together to how do we advance this globally? How do we get really speed up the process of this? And then I think the role storytelling can play is 
um, we drive so much awareness around, right? There's without the stories, no one's going to know about a lot of these different conditions. Um, and some of the things we've seen on the Mighty, we've seen people actually that they both thought their doctors had said they are the only person in the world that have something. One in Germany, one in the U.S. They found each other through the Mighty and figured out they have the same thing, right? The, think about the that connection between those two families and what they've been through and talking and all that. So that comes through stories. And so I think, you know, really in terms of speeding up this process to getting, uh, you know, people getting diagnosed, how do doctors remember things? Story. We all do. This is just, you know, we're humans. This is how we work. And so the more that we can share those um, experiences, uh, I think that particularly for this commission, we're looking at using stories, using, you know, all the ways we can drive awareness to speed up that, that diagnostic process. Thank you. Well put. So I want to come back to a question that we're getting from from the audience, and this should be a, an easy one. But Cam, uh, we are getting a question. What's your favorite medium to work in? So I do um, digital. It's just easier in my arms. It's more difficult to move them. So most of my work is now digital. Perfect. And, and not so messy these days, uh, hopefully. Yes. Uh, and then Andrew and uh, Matt uh, want to kick a, an easy question to answer over to you. People are wondering, how can they become guests on NordPod? Shall we give them your social security number and home address and blood type, perhaps? Just, just my personal cell phone number. We'll, <laughs> well, you can tweet at, what is it, NordPod? What, what, what Twitter <laughs> handle did you set up for it? Uh, our Twitter handle is at rare diseases, but you can email us at nordpod at rarediseases.org. Or if you feel so inclined, you can go to www.rarediseases.org backslash share your story and putting your info there. And that's for Nordpod. That can also be for our blog, social posts, interviews. We do a lot of, of storytelling, um, but we, we know that NordPod is a unique place uh, where they get to interact with you two lovely gentlemen. And that's maybe a little more fun than, than uh, having a, a conversation with me. I think what's important, and Andrew and I talked about this ad nauseum, is that we believe that the rivers carve themselves. And as much as we are overjoyed to bring the voice of rare disease to the world, to listen to to support, to learn from. We want you to be a part of it. So giving us feedback, thoughts, ideas, recommendations, how can we be a better platform for the community will be decided by and listened to from the community. The Stupid Cancer Show was just me in a garage rhetorically, you know, talking into the ether of nothing, but listening to hundreds of people chiming in all the time. It wasn't, can I be on this show? It was like, would you love to talk more about how I can be a better advocate? How did my how, how do I talk to my son about me getting diagnosed with this? This is the wisdom of crowd at its finest. And we are not in any remote place of hierarchy and superiority to think we know what needs to be said on this show because it's going to be a great show and it's going to be driven by you. And so one ask that I'd like to suggest is that, you know, during the course of this forum, you have probably been thinking about your own story. We'd love to hear from you what you would like NordPod to be. If you use Twitter, why don't you go to at NordPodcast and Give us a suggestion. Begin to tell your story there, perhaps. 
great information and look forward to getting lots of responses to come back to you on Monday morning and filter through. You know, getting back kind of to how patient stories and storytelling can impact our understanding of rare disease, we got a great, a great question from the audience. How can healthcare educators use storytelling in the classroom to teach about rare diseases and the lack of treatment? Uh, Mike, I think this one might be a, a great question for you to, to answer. Sure. Um, it's a great question. And I think um, the role of stories uh, can, can play an enormous role, I think, in, in healthcare education. Um, we often will have contributors to the Mighty go out uh, and work with medical schools. Um, and, and one of the things that we're learning is, you know, we can't expect any doctor to know all of the 7,000 rare diseases and know how to diagnose them. Um, but by hearing stories and hearing how other people may have gotten diagnosed or their own, you know, odyssey that they've gone through to get a diagnosis, um, that process, that approach can play a big role in terms of educating folks and saying, oh, well, this thing got diagnosed in this way, or this person was diagnosed with this disease this way, maybe I ought to approach this patient that I'm seeing who I can't get an answer. I don't, I don't, I, just, I haven't gotten the answer, but maybe it's about approaching it in a certain way that you've learned because you heard somebody else got diagnosed a certain way. Um, and so again, it's just, uh, stories are, you know, teaching mechanisms for us all. Um, and they can absolutely be applied, I think, in the classroom, uh, particularly around, um, you know, people who are in the healthcare industry that are seeing patients and, you know, want to help them and learning what others have been through and how they've gotten diagnosed can play a big part in that. That's great. And I, I, I think that you're absolutely right that finding ways to get patient stories to give sort of qualitative uh, data to our healthcare professionals and researchers in the form of storytelling is is yet another piece of that puzzle that we need um, to to move to the future state that I think we would all like to see. Uh, Mike, as I want to give you this next question, but I think it also can apply to, to Matt and Andrew. So I'll have you guys on deck as well, and, and, and Cam too. Um, storytelling, you know, we all have our stories, and it's important that we share. Um, but what about the business of storytelling? Uh, how do we take our stories and potentially not just leverage them to make us better advocates, um, but create a business model around them so that we have relationships with nonprofits, with advertisers, with researchers, and with educators without compromising our stories? Yeah, you know, for us, what we saw, I mean, there's obviously things like advertising when you reach a certain amount of people and all that, but the best business models are um, where there's really clear value to members of a community as well as, um, the, you know, there's got to be some someone who's paying to have some kind of access or get insights. Um, and we found, um, you know, when we started The Mighty, we did not know we were actually doing this. We, we built this enormous database of how people actually experience health. Um, and we don't sell any kind of personal information or anything like that. But when you when we can look at you know um, you know twelve thousand posts within a, within a particular um, you know disease state and we can learn a tremendous amount when you look at the kind of the totality of all those experiences and so you know something um, at least in, in in terms of healthcare uh, the companies that are trying to create treatments to help folks with rare disease the pharm pharmaceutical companies they have some they they really care about patient reported outcomes right Th these are people who are saying what happened to them when they were on a medication or, you know, things like that, clinical trials, all of those things. Um, 
Um, there's a, they want to be connected to folks uh, who want to share their voices, right? And so that's what one of the things the Mighty tries to do is bring together people who want to share their voice um, with companies who want to hear that voice because that can help them in terms of drug development and all those things. And we try to bring them together. And that's, you know, that's um, a big part of our, our business model in terms of what we've built to date. Anyone else want to jump in on that question before we move on? You know, I, I think that there, there is simply a value. Uh, I'll speak more broadly. I think that there really is a value that you ought to own in the story that you have to tell, especially if, if you suspect that you're the only one who's experiencing it. And I don't think that anyone should feel shy about extending the concept of value into the realm of financial stability, you know? Um, You've been you've been dealt a challenging hand, and I think that you should play it for all it's worth. Your stories are valuable. You should find a way to make them uh, a way to sustain yourself financially. Don't be shy about that. You know, we're not getting in the weeds. I have so my podcast out of patience. We've done many many shows about quote pay your patience, and I think the you know. This is where I step in to remind Matt that we're not allowed to use profound language. Yeah, the, I'll, I'll be I'll be PG on this, but the gist is that you didn't ask for your story to happen. It just kind of happened. And if your story is valuable to company X, company Y, so they can do X or Y to help X or Y, their model is capitalism. They're going to profit. That's their goal. And if they need your story and the stories of others like you to give them the insights that they need to do X, Y, and Z and profit, you should be compensated because your story is worth money to them. And mostly they don't care to pay you for that because they think, oh, you'll just do it because you're helping. And I'll be genteel about that, but I would encourage you uh, to check out my podcast, Out of Patience, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, because we have done probably four of the 30 shows on the value of recognizing as a patient, as an advocate, that your story, I hate to say it so bluntly, is worth money. Yeah, because it can drive the development of, of things that will make money for other organizations. Right. Like, don't want to be crass here, but really, the, there is a value here, and there's a need to sustain yourself financially. You, you should not be shy about asking for compensation where appropriate. All right. And moving on to uh, another topic. So as we're talking about being open and sharing our stories, one of the things that we haven't really talked about is the fear of facing discrimination or retaliation in the workplace because you've been open with your story, especially if you have a disease that might impact your ability to work at the same pace uh, in the future or, or because maybe you're caring for a child with a rare disease. Um, I'm so lucky to work for an employer that uh, is one in a million in, in dealing with this issue. But for, for the others on the panel, I'd love to hear maybe either how you personally or how you, you know, how others have dealt with this. You know, it's a very important issue and, and it, it gets to privacy, PHI, HIPAA concerns. You know, when you're sharing your story, you're putting that all out on, on the line. And, and you know, how, how do you deal with that? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I want to start 30,000 feet in the sky coming from cancer 
we can discuss commonalities and common threads, but you know, the perspective of cancer still today as a boogeyman is you're just going to die. Everything's Deborah Winger from terms of endearment. And this idea that people can live long, healthy lives with, through and beyond their disease, 80% of the time, like that's new to the consciousness of the employer and the risk models of productivity and whatnot. Let's say COVID out of the conversation for now, I'm going to refer everyone to an organization called cancer and careers. Doesn't matter that you didn't have cancer. You might as well, it could be anything in careers. What they've done for the past 20 some odd years is create the defining platform to understand your rights and your liberties as an employer. And whether it is understanding gaps in your resume because you had to take time off, Family Medical Leave Act, um, uh, reasonable accommodations, or when you think you've been let go for the wrong reasons and what attorney to go to because you can prove that you were fired irresponsibly. Or if there is workplace discrimination from employees, your fellow team members, they have writ large defined the idea that you have rights as a human being, as an employee, if you face these situations. So Cancer and Careers, again, it could be anything in careers.org is the place I'd go to see the templates that they've established. And adjacent to that is the fact that, you know, when I was diagnosed, there was no internet. So I didn't have a digital footprint that you could breadcrumb yourself back and see all these things are going on. You put your email out there. You put a website out there. You put a Twitter handle in a bio on your resume. They're going to find you and they're going to research you and they're going to do all this Google archiving on you. And they're going to see what you put out on the Internet. And it's your responsibility to be accountable for what you share online. And I could quote the CEO of Cancer Careers, Rebecca Nellis. If you don't want people to know about it, don't put it online. Doesn't mean you shouldn't, but you need to have responsibility and and strategy on how that comes into play in the workforce. Cam, I think uh, you wanted to speak to this as well. Uh, yes, I think um, job discrimination for the disability community is really important, and it's a larger topic than these few minutes. But I went through that as well when I jumped into advocacy. It was very unwittingly. I didn't make a decision. I didn't think about it, and I was just out of design college and trying to build this professional career. You know, trying to look professional. But then you have this. For me, it's uh, it's physically obvious what's going on, and so. One of my first interviews, I got there early and I had to hide my cane and I was hired. He, the person didn't know, the manager didn't know I was disabled. And so I had the um, opportunity to show what I was capable of. And so a lot of the company, which is a pretty big company, the colleagues were, they knew what I was uh, capable of. So they didn't really treat me disabled. And I even gave a big PowerPoint presentation of what my disability was, what it was, and executives from the companies came and, and everything, and they were very supportive. But after I left that job, um, I went job searching, and I realized I just got into a wheelchair. And a lot of the companies, I would do phone interviews, and they were basically ready to hire me, and then they'd show up to meet them in the office as a last, in the last meeting of the um, sort of meet and the interview process. And that's when they decided, no, because all they saw was a wheelchair. And so while I advocate for my rare disease, I'm also largely the last few years has been about disability um, and how the misnomers of how people view us, all they see is someone who is disabled, so you're not put and able. And this is a big 
issue for the disability community because most people want to contrib contribute. People don't want to live off of assistance. And I think that's a, um, you know, a myth that uh, the able-bodied society thinks is that we're just feeding off of the government system. But people want to be hired, but we're not given those chances. And this is largely why I went freelance, because people can't see my wheelchair through the computer screen. And, um, you know, like I said in the beginning, I just didn't really have to think about it. I just got into advocacy. And it did take some years because I was trying to live these two lives of professional career where, you know, I have to hide everything about myself, but I'm also publicly sharing my story. And it was only the last few years that I realized, um, you know, I kind of sacrificed my design career a lot for advocacy, but I'm really comfortable with realizing this is what I want to do. This is how I want to help people and just use my design skills for something that I didn't expect that I'd be doing. Well, I know the, the Rare community is very grateful for that sacrifice. What you do is very beautiful. Um, Mike, I just want to pivot to you to see if you uh, also wanted to contribute to this question. Um, yeah, so I think um, one of the things that I hope, you know, we get come out of this pandemic, and hopefully we will, um, there will be a lot more companies that are hiring people, you know, virtually. They're, they're hiring people to, you know, work um, remotely. And I do hope that that's going to help people with disabilities um, because the unemployment rate um, among people with disabilities is quite high. Um, at our own company, The Mighty, um, most of the people who work here have health conditions or are caring for people with health conditions. Our entire moderation team, we intentionally built around people who have disabilities and um, can only work from home. And, you know, they get the, the, the passion that they give and, and they're, they're so... Um, you know, into it. And I think there's actually so many valuable things around hiring uh, people with disabilities that a lot of companies don't don't quite see. I did want to mention just one example that I felt really good about. I got a phone call yesterday from a friend of mine who works for one of the big television networks. And he was asked a question around, uh, there's someone who actually wants to go back and work in the studio rather than working from home. And the reason is because he has an autistic son and it's very difficult for him to work with um, the child often like banging on the office door and, you know, disrupting, um, you know, some of his work. And because my friend knows my daughter and some of the challenges she had, he really he got it. And they're, they're going to allow this guy to go back and, and work in the studio because of it. But it's a matter of the more, again, the more stories we share, that the reason my friend understood this is because he knows my daughter and he knows many of the things that we've been through as a family. And so he was able to connect that with his, you know, one of his employees. So for, for folks out there who are, who have certain issues with their employer or trying to find their way, I mean, I, I really encourage them to, to bring it up with their employer if they can, um, if they feel comfortable doing that. And if they don't, they may want to look for an organization to work for where they do feel more, more comfortable, where it doesn't have to be two identities, a work identity and, you know, some personal identity that people should be able to have, you know, coexist across all these things. So I hope that's helpful. No, that's that's great. And I think that was a very important question for us to uh, move towards wrapping up on. We, we I want to give uh, the panelists just a, a quick minute to um, say anything that we didn't get to get to today or anything that came up in the course of our conversation. Um, so, Matthew and Andrew, I'm going to kick it to you first. If you have any last uh, thoughts to share. I'm going to keep it very simple. I'm going to give you uh, two photographs. One is of my son, Henry. This is just uh, two months after his chemotherapy. And you know, through the help of the community that was developed around this entire experience, um, Henry now, he, he looks, uh, I can't find the, 
Here, come back to me. You're a terrible show. father. I am a terrible dad. There, there are 6,000 pictures of him. <laughs> he here. can't find one yeah, picture yeah, of his yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's... Um, <clears throat> But he, I've, I've seen I'm going to show it to you in no, just a moment. It's coming. No, I've seen him. He exists. He's real. And he's fabulous. I'm going to beat you to it. So this was me when I was nearly dying. That's my parents. I had a good shaped head at the time, so I didn't really feel that terrible. But it was the 90s and being bald wasn't so, uh, wasn't so bougie yet. I guess my, my, my key message is what I started out with is that advocacy matters. Advocacy happens and advocacy works. And it, it, it's just a bunch of syllables, but it's what it means to you. I didn't ask to be an advocate. No one wakes up and says, I'm going to advocate for something I can't wait to be sick with in 25 years. You enter the community. There's no greeter like Walmart. Hey, what, what aisle do you want to buy your shampoo on? It doesn't happen. So I look at advocacy as an accident. You know, born of our conditions, whether it's induced, you're born with it, something happens to a friend of yours, you take up a cause that you didn't realize would matter to you because you were served something unfair, unjust. And it's okay. Sometimes you just need to be told it's okay, you're going to be fine. But now we have an opportunity that didn't exist 25 years ago when I was sick, you know, with rotary phones and, and people just banged on your door. There was no ring. You had no idea who was standing there when they rang your bell. This idea that we are a global citizenship, thanks to the good parts of digital and the good parts of social media, we lean into those and find our tribes. And that, to me, is how we each figure out what advocacy means to us and how we channel it to make the difference we'd like to see in the world. And I do have the photograph keyed up now. Oh, you're a good dad now. I am. So this is Henry about to jump in the pool a couple of weeks ago. Okay, now look very closely in his eyes. You see that determination? What is flying through his mind right now is the result of all of the stories that we shared with him and all the stories that he's telling himself about where he's going in life. That is the look of a kid who has a very clear story. Wonderful. Mike, any, any last words of wisdom for our audience? So my last word will actually be just the example of the very first story we ever published um, on The Mighty from a contributor. And it, it speaks to the power of it. And I think why stories are so powerful. Um, this woman wrote in about the experience of having her daughter was born and lived for 22 minutes and passed away. And she knew, you know, weeks before the birth that this was going to happen, that she had a fatal disease and her daughter was going to die. And if you just read that headline and know that that's the story, I mean, how tragic. I can't imagine anything worse than, than going through something like that. And yet her story was so beautiful. It was because she, in her story, she ascribed meaning to her own experience of what that was like and how it changed her, how it changed her family. Um, and it was just, I mean, I'm, I'm choking up even thinking about the story. It was the very first one that was sent into the mighty. And uh, what happened with that is, you know, we don't, we don't think about the fact that, that that happens millions of times a year around the world where someone gives birth and that baby doesn't survive 24 hours. And think about the grief that people go through and all that. That Her story was has been read now hundreds of thousands of times, you know, thousands of comments that have poured in because she was able to open up and talk about grief and talk about, again, how it influenced her in so many ways. In so many positive ways in terms of her life, you know, kind of after that moment. And but because she started the conversation, others could join. And so the impact that her one story had on so many people has been amazing. And I, I think, you know, for those that are out there watching this who are thinking about how do I share my story or what do I do, take a constructive approach to it. 
find the moments that really matter. That's what's going to ring true to others and figure out, ascribe meaning to them. Uh, that's what's unique about your own story is the meaningfulness of, of those moments. And then, um, and do it in a constructive way where others are going to see that and they can apply it to themselves in some way. So that would be my, my final word, which was, a, as an, was an essay. No, that's great. Galvanized, right? Galvanized. Very the day. Uh, and, and lastly, I want to I send it over to you, Cam, for any final thoughts. Yeah, um, a couple of things. I, I think one of the things that society doesn't place as much importance on is emotional intelligence. And I think stories allow us to um, connect emotionally, and um, it allows us to feel like we're not alone. And when you're dealing with a disability or a disease and you're trying to advocate, you know, doing one or the either or both, there is no book on how to deal with the process of grief of something that's so that's so big and prolific that it changes your life. Um, and I would say for those who are fearful of coming out or talking about it, fearing being vulnerable, when I speak about emotional intelligence, I think it's really important for people to verbalize and talk about what it is that is going on in a life, um, not just for yourself, but for others, um, because that's really the only way healing can begin. And you don't have to choose one or the other. They can both coincide together. And as your condition progresses or whatever it is, um, it's a journey and a process of sharing and also learning how to deal with the milestones of it. So I would just say, don't be afraid to talk about it. Um, don't be afraid of like people judging you because who, there are people that are going to be attracted to it. And those that are are going to come to you and, and, and you will build a community. So I would just say just, you know, um, talk about it and, and be proud of yourself and realize that you have all of the capabilities to overcome your struggles. Thank you. This has been so amazing. I, I, uh, can we do this every Saturday night? I mean, this has been, this has like filled my bank and my heart, uh, for I think months to come. I, I just want to thank everyone for their contributions to our discussion today, both the panelists and the audience. They've given us a lot to think about. Um, and I just want to remind everyone that we will be back tomorrow, the Living Rear Forum, uh, tomorrow at noon Eastern time. Until then, visit themighty.com to read some of those moving stories. Check out Cam Redlosk on Insta. Make sure to give her a follow. Give a listen to Out of Patience, the flagship podcast from Offscript. Visit nordpod.com to listen to the teaser, subscribe, and give us a super duper great ratings galvanize. I don't know. I think that was the word of the day. And and if you want to be a part of that, by all means, please reach out. We're here to um, share all of the stories from our entire community because we know that alone we're rare, but together we're strong and we're definitely stronger when we're out there speaking and making our voices heard. Speaking of being heard and great reviews, don't forget to fill out the evaluation after we wrap. We are raffling off an Apple Watch to one lucky person who completes a survey and shares feedback that will help us make for stellar events in the future, either virtually or in person once we get beyond this pandemic. So thank you all so much again for today, and I will see you tomorrow. That's all for today. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Media. 
Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Leslie Nordstrom. Andrew McDowell is our senior producer. Valerie Don Francesco is our marketing manager. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary and the post-production team at Offscript Media. Our theme music is by the Salvatones. Learn more about the music of the Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit nordpod.org.